0: Hello and welcome to our next episode of Clinical Conversations provided by the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Anda Balarga, and I'm currently a TMC member. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Colin Stirrett, Consultant Cardiologist at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. Welcome Dr Stirrett and thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you. Uh, Dr Stirrett has a specialist interest in electrophysiology and device therapy and today we're going to talk about atrial fibrillation. And really, we're going to cover what's new in the clinical assessment and management of AF patients following the recently updated guidelines on AF from the European Society of Cardiology. As we all know, atrial fibrillation is the most common sustained arrhythmia and is often encountered in medical practice. It is a topic relevant to all medical practitioners, irrespective of specialty or clinical setting. So before we start, I thought we'll just I'm going to ask you, Dr. Stirrett to give us an overview of the key updates from the recent guidelines that you think are important for clinical practice or will change the way we look after AF patients.
1: Well, Anda, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me to, uh, to come and talk to you today about atrial fibrillation. The guidelines that have been, uh, been developed recently advocate a more personalized approach to AF care, uh, int- integrating a holistic holistic approach and really involving patients in the, in the decision-making process. There are several key updates that hopefully we'll be able to cover in our discussion this afternoon. So firstly, the ESC have proposed a so-called ABC pathway. Now, I really like this and it's a simple reminder of the key factors in treating patients with AF and it also allows for this personalized approach. So what is this ABC pathway? Well, firstly, the A stands for anticoagulation. So we have to consider all patients whether they should be anticoagulated or not to avoid stroke. Uh, and, and the decision regarding anticoagulation is, is according to the CHADS vasc score, score as before. So that part hasn't really changed. So, so what about B? So B stands for better symptom control. Now this could be rate control or it could be rhythm control with medication or even catheter ablation. So it's really whatever improves the patient's symptoms. So what about C? And this is the part that I that I really like actually. C stands for cardiovascular risk factors or AF with an emphasis on risk factor modification. Now the reason that I really like this, uh, well, I'm an electrophysiologist who sees patients referred for specific treatments for atrial fibrillation, and I'm just really delighted that ESE has emphasised the importance of of early risk factor modification for atrial fibrillation. There are some other updated recommendations for screening, uh, some new recommendations for for catheter ablation and for patients undergoing PCI. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to cover uh, most of the important points this afternoon.
0: Great, I think that's a great summary. Thank you so much. Um, And yes, they've made some important, well, changes or highlights in the care of AF patients and uh, we'll cover some of these management uh, um, issues in more detail. But for the first part, because you said you really liked seeing, I think risk factors so important in the management of AF patients, um, can we summarise a bit the etiology of AF? We know it's multifactorial, uh, and the recognition of risk factors and comorbidity optimization is an important aspect of the ABC AF uh, care pathway. What are these main risk factors that we should be aware of and should uh, be managing?
1: So, clinical risk factors are are really important, and they're something that we have uh, we've kind of ignored until the last. Sort of five or so years, we'd always looked at atrial fibrillation, um, or previously historically looked at atrial fibrillation as more of an, a, a primary rhythm disorder, which it is. But for many patients, and probably the vast majority of patients that I see, you know, in uh, in Edinburgh, um, you know, the AF has generally happened for a reason. Now that, that can be things like genetics, but for the vast majority of people that I see uh, there are clinical risk factors that you know that that are important in them developing atrial fibrillation. Um, specifically, I think there's some really, really, really good evidence um, that losing weight in patients carrying excess weight significantly reduces their AF burden. Uh, other modifiable risk factors include hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, sedentary lifestyle, smoking, excess alcohol, and these kind of things. Now, these are the things that um, uh, really uh, provoke uh, atrial disease or, or, or atrial muscle disease with fatty infiltration, with fibrotic infiltration, atrial stretch, atrial dilatation. Now, all these things that, that, that cause somebody to develop atrial fibrillation. Um, I thought I'd maybe just touch upon a, a, a couple of more specific points uh, and, and emphasise the importance of weight loss uh, and, and modifying risk factors because I think this is, this is really important. So um, I mentioned that, that I'm referred patients for, for, for catheter ablation for AF. And catheter ablation is a good treatment, but certainly not perfect. And I think some of the success rates are often overemphasised to patients. So, for an example, um, if you've got a patient with paroxysmal AF, I would say, uh, uh, for you know, for for most patients, we would quote them something like a seventy to eighty percent um, success rate, that being freedom from AF at about a year, and that's for that's for paroxysmal AF patients. And for persistent AF patients, it's probably more in the region of fifty to sixty percent. Um, the success rate of these procedures has to be weighed up against the risks of a procedural complication. Uh, you know, for a for 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 AF for for a catheter AF procedure, serious and life-threatening complications are pretty rare, less than one percent. But complications can be serious and include things like stroke, tamponade, atrio atrio geofistula, and phrenic nerve uh, palsy. So so. I'm slowly slowly getting to my point. But if you have a patient who can significantly reduce his or her AF burden with weight loss, modifying other risk factors, perhaps alongside an antiarrhythmic drug if tolerated, their symptoms might improve substantially to a point where the patient feels better and that catheter ablation is no longer warranted or justified. So I think the importance of modifying risk factors for AF really really shouldn't be underestimated and I'm delighted that the AF have, have included this in the, in, in the ABC uh, approach.
0: Yeah so, you, so you're basically saying that when someone has AF diagnosed and we should really in that first first instance consider all these risk factors and try and address them the same we would be doing with people with cerebrovascular disease or ischemic heart disease um, and, and address them well and of course discuss management options as well but address that risk
1: exactly. together with
0: stroke risk and other things because they all all in together.
1: Yes, you've summed that up really well. Yeah. I guess <laughs> <it didn't. laughs>
0: and um, so that kind of makes me think though because AF is, is common isn't it? Um, what about screening especially opportunistic screening in in patients we have risk factors such as hypertension smoking obesity as you as you said what about that do we need to do it what's your what's your thoughts on that well,
1: screening uh, screening is you know has its pros and cons screening for any condition has its pros and cons and it there is an update on screening um, in the guidelines so for af you know, the aim of the screening is to identify people who might benefit from anticoagulation who we, who we may be able to prevent it, you know, a stroke for by giving them anticoagulation. But on the other hand, you know, screening may involve, may simply just involve checking a pulse, but may involve, uh, you know, do, doing an ECG and we may uh, cause the patient to be quite anxious about that or we may find things like structural cardiomyopathies or. Uh, or channelopathies, or things like that, which the patient um, didn't know about before. So I think we have to think about that when we start any kind of screening uh, sort of process. Mm-hmm. The EAC say that we should opportunistically screen elderly patients, so over 65, by a pulse check, but then go on and confirm this by a uh, 12 VDCG. Uh, and that we should also be screening cardiac devices, so pacemakers and ICDs. Um, but they've but they've, they've they've advised us and reminded us that we really need to fully inform patients about the pros and cons of entering into a screening uh, program. Uh, they've also suggested uh, that although opportunistic screening is you know is good and it's cost effective. Obviously, a, the diagnosis needs confirmed on a 12-lead ECG or a single-lead ECG for at least 30 seconds. I, I think screening is going to change a lot over the next next few years, and we've got you know, devices such as smartphone apps or smartwatches that are now capable of detecting AF and are becoming common and mainstream, and patients are starting to self-present with with really self-diagnosed AF, whether it be symptomatic or not or 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 asymptomatic. And I think this is this this really is a fast a fast moving area at the moment. So 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 I would watch this space if you, uh, if you excuse the pun. Yes. But I think we need I think we need to be very careful in ensuring that all these devices, smart you know, smart watches, smartphones are accurate and then uh, AF is confirmed by, by another means um uh, just a comment on asymptomatic af some previous screening studies have identified one to two percent of the of, of the elderly population to previously undiagnosed af or asymptomatic af which appears to have a, a worse outlook than symptomatic af but this may well be related to uh to other comorbidities that you know that that, that make them asymptomatic uh, in the first place. So I think screening, uh, yes, opportunistic screening is is cheap, cost-effective. Um, but I think we need to uh, be careful about screening programs, and and this area is going to change considerably over uh, o- over the next few years. And I- I'm beginning to see a lot of patients with health anxieties because they've bought a smartwatch or they've been more or they've been watching their pulse on their um on their smartphone or whatever. So so I think I think we're gonna to need to think about this and have clearer uh, clearer guidelines and protocols about this going forward.
0: Thank you. That is excellent advice. That was um like my next question I was going to ask you about uh, wearable devices, but I think we covered that and as you said and as they guidelines say um, involving the patient in terms of deciding the risk of benefits of this is, is important. Mm-hmm. If we yeah. go back to the patients that we see on the medical wards or you know considered referring for specialist investigation can we summarize what are the standard investigation that should be performed in all patients with newly diagnosed atrial fibrillation and should all patients be referred for an echocardiogram or cardiology specialist assessment.
1: Um, that's a that's a that's a really good question, and I think what was the standard of care a year ago, you know, with the current COVID climate, um, might not be the standard of care now. Or certainly, COVID's led us to review how we approach uh, how we approach different clinical scenarios. Um, in terms of tests, so let me start with tests first. I think it's useful to take standard blood tests. Blood count, check patient's not anemic, renal function, liver function, TFTs. I think these are all pretty important things you want to check patient wasn't hyperthyroid, for example. You know, renal and liver function are, uh, are important bleeding risk factors, including the hands-blood score. Uh, you know, you obviously want to check the patient wasn't particularly anaemic or demand deficiency anaemia before you anticoagulated them, and obviously uh, renal function uh, dictates what what dose of of, of oral anticoagulant uh, you use. You know, for some of the oral anticoagulants, the dose does change based on renal function, um, or you know, whether you can give an oral anticoagulant at all, uh, dependent on the renal function. So I think these are. Uh, sort of mandatory tests, I would say. The ECHO, the echo question is, is a good one. Um, I think we really need to look at our resource use uh, at the moment. So I would say I don't think an ECHO is mandatory for all patients, but I, I would qualify that with it's very useful in the vast majority of patients. Um, if you have an elderly patient where you're accepting a rate control and anticoagulation strategy, who, for example, doesn't have any murmurs or no signs of symptoms of heart failure, uh, a narrow QRS duration, the ECG. And I don't think, I don't think an ECHO is mandatory if that patient, um, you know, symptoms are controlled, they're anticoagulatively rate controlled. On the, the flip side of that is if you have any patient who you're pursuing a rhythm control strategy, say you know, a young patient or, or any patient with a murmur or signs or symptoms of heart failure. Then yes, I think an echo is absolutely warranted. You'd obviously want to check LV function is normal before giving any common antiarrhythmic, such as dronedron or flecainide. Um, you, you also, I think you asked me about about yes. specialist assessment.
0: Yeah, cardiology clinic. Um,
1: well, I think I think that. That depends on the experience of the attending physician. Many GPs or, or, or some GPs will be quite comfortable in starting anticoagulation and ensuring rate control, uh, for example, in patients found opportunistically to have AF. If these patients are truly asymptomatic, providing the GPs looked at, you know, the you know, ABC, then I don't think the patient necessarily requires referral, so say an elderly patient. Opportunistically screened asymptomatic AF, rate controlled, no symptoms, uh, they've been considered for anticoagulation. Then I don't necessarily think uh, they need to be, they need to see a specialist. I would say that uh, I would suggest referral for for all patients who remain symptomatic despite initial treatment, especially patients uh, suitable for a rhythm control strategy, you know, and uh, especially young patients. This isn't in the guidelines, but there is some emerging evidence that a more aggressive and earlier rhythm constro- control strategy may be beneficial. And, uh, so I think, uh, you know, certainly younger patients, patients eligible for a rhythm constro- control strategy, then yes, I think, I think we're fair. Great.
0: Right. So I think that the same theme kind of is emerging, isn't it? The personalised approach to assessing these patients. Yeah, yeah, So we talked a bit about the assessment, the risk factors, um, and the, at the beginning you summarized nicely the ABC um, management pathway proposed by ESC. Well, just, I'm just going to summarize that again, and hopefully, we can just go for some specific aspects for each point. So A stands for anticoagulation and, and avoid stroke, B is for better symptom management, and C for cardiovascular and comorbidity optimization. Yes, that's right. Are, are there any changes in the assessment of stroke risk and prevention, uh, or the, the the risk of bleeding? Um, you said already, I think about CHADS VASC two and HAS BLED, and that is that the same? Uh, have there been any?
1: Um, no, there's 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 not really been been changes uh, on that regard. Um, I, no, should so, so, so the chance basket risk score is still used. So males with a score of two or greater, females three or greater should be anticoagulated. Um, males with score zero and females with score zero or one don't need to be anticoagulated. And for the sort of group in the middle, so that would be males with a score of one and females of two, and the AC uh, say that anticoagulation should be considered. Um, ha- the has-bled score, so the bleeding risk score that we've been using, hasn't changed either. Although there is often a little bit of confusion about the use of, of the bleeding risk score. And I would emphasize that the has-bled score isn't there to prevent um, or, or, or deter us from prescribing anticoagulation. It's really, you know, it comes down to this personalized approach again, but it. it It's really to identify those high bleeding risk so that it really gives us an opportunity to modify any bleeding risk factors and to ensure these patients at high bleeding risk have a regular evaluation of their bleeding risk factors. Uh, I'd also comment that uh, I I get asked quite a lot about falls risk. Um, the, The ESC are pretty clear about this. He said that a risk of falling or patients that fall shouldn't really deter physicians from prescribing an oral anticoagulant to patients who are, who are eligible for an anticoagulant and whom it should be recommended.
0: Yeah, and a um, specific question about anticoagulant. So uh, the direct oral anticoagulant therapy is preferred now in the um, Management of stroke risk in AF patients over vitamin K antagonists such as warfarin. And of course, with some exceptions there, like prosthetic valve, uh, prosthetic valves. Um, yeah. However, we do have patients who have been on warfarin for a long time. What is the practice or best practice there? Is it to switch them to a NOAC, or is it to leave them on a, a warfarin if they manage okay with the INR checks and everything is fine?
1: Yeah, um, we still see some patients who who are on warfarin for uh, for AF, and but I think we all know, and as you mentioned, that that an oral anticoagulant you know, is better. I think the trials all tell us that, and they, you know, we're, we're pretty comfortable about that now. Um, but what about what about patients stable on warfarin? Well, I think if if they've got a very high proportion of time within the therapeutic range, so they're, you know, so they're within the therapeutic range, uh, mm-hmm. most, you know, the vast majority of the time, then I think it's not unreasonable to keep them on warfarin. You know, I, I think you'd obviously involve the patient in this discussion. And some patients don't like the sound of an oral coagulant or whatever they've had a friend or a relative that's that's um, you know that's had a you know a bad experience so i think you know patient preference is you know is important here uh so so for these patients i don't think it's unreasonable to keep them on warfarin however in the current you know the current circumstances with covid we're taking the opportunity to look at how we are delivering healthcare, and i think uh, you know we're trying to limit essentially limit certainly at the moment uh Face-to-face contact or unnecessary face-to-face contact to try and reduce the COVID spread. So I think, so I think switching AF patients from warfarin to an oral anticoagulant, where they wouldn't need to see a healthcare professional so often for an INR check, you know, it seems it seems like a bit of a no-brainer to me um, mm-hmm. that you know that you know that these patients could, you know, maybe should be switched. The the ESC I don't think say that. I think they say you can keep patients on on warfarin if if their time within the therapeutic range is satisfactory.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So the last few months are definitely changing the way we provide healthcare. Um, So if we think about B and the symptom and better symptom control, what is the recommended approach to managing symptomatic patients with AF? hemodynamically stable, and what's the preferred first-line therapy?
1: Um, so uh, there, are, I think if we go, so I think we will always start start with the ABC approach. So, so for you know for any symptomatic patient, we'd always start with A. For any patient, we always start with A. You consider anticoagulation. But what about what about uh, symptomatic patients? Well. Some symptomatic patients may simply be improved with rate control, perhaps elderly patients or patient, or patients in whom uh, our rate control is more str- more sensible or, or our rhythm control uh, strategy perhaps isn 't sensible there, in terms of in terms of rhythm control drugs, which is I think what you were, what you were sort of getting at, there really isn 't a go to drug for all situations so how do I choose a drug for a specific situation? Well, it really depends on the clinical characteristics of the patient, and of course, patient preference, you know, as, we've, as is a theme uh, through this discussion. The, f- the first line antiarrhythmic drugs that I tend to use more of uh, are flecainide, usually along with an AV nodal blocking drug, because flecainide can organise uh, atrial fibrillation into, into, a, into a slower flutter rhythm and in patients with, with, uh, with quite quick AV nodal conduction, uh, maybe in young patients, they can conduct flutter one-to-one uh, uh, to the ventricles. So I would usually prescribe this along with an AV nodal blocking drug. The other uh, antiarrhythmic that I use quite often for AF is dronedron. Now, both of these, both of these tablets have their, have their pluses and their minuses. So I guess flecainide can be used as a pill-in-the-pocket approach, so just infrequently for patients who get an AF infrequently or who don't want to take regular therapy. Um, but in terms of flecainide and dronedarone, well, has got its downsides. It needs to have monitoring uh, for liver and renal function, um, both of these tablets, flacainide like and dronedron, you wouldn't give to somebody with like, significant L V impairment. So there are so there are things that you need to consider, uh, and obviously a patient preference as well.
0: And you didn't really mention um, amiodron. Sorry to interrupt you. Is that no, no, no. There's, 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 well?
1: With, sorry, what was the question? We don't, when so you I,
0: didn't um, mention amiodron in the red... Yeah. N-
1: I wouldn't give amiodarone long-term to patients, uh, usually, especially if they're young, due to the risk of you know, the, the long-term side effects. I would, however, and I do often give it to elderly patients because you're less worried about the long-term side effects than someone who's in their 80s, um, especially if they're highly symptomatic from AF. The other time, uh, you would, uh, I use AF, Quite a lot is when I'm is when I'm cardioverting people. So, so when you're planning to use it in a ter- on a short term on a short term basis, so I use it to to try and enhance the chances of a successful cardioversion. And I know some people use it around the time of catheter ablation to try. You know, you know, it's really our most powerful um, powerful antiarrhythmic AF drug that we use. So I think short term use is okay, but but I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't use it in long you know, term with patients due to the risk of you know, serious long term side effects and complications.
0: Yeah. And in, the, in terms of the rate control strategy, what are your preferred um, first line medications? Or what works best from
1: yeah. practice? I, te- I, I tend to start with, you know, if every function is good, I tend to start with a beta blocker, but a rate, a rate limiting calcium channel blocker is also fine. And I quite like digoxin as well. So, so, so the combination of these three. Um, the ESC guidelines suggest that we don't need to be so strict with with, um, uh, with heart rate control. So, so a sort of sort um, of sort of moderate heart rate control, you know, is just as good. Providing the patient, providing patient symptomatic, so so there are the three drugs that you know that I would use for uh, for rate control. Just a quick comment on ablation. I've not mentioned uh, no. ablation much. Um, I would normally offer ablation to an AF patient that's failed an antiarrhythmic drug. Um, the guidelines suggest that you can offer it first line, but I would always be cautious um, and always involve the patient fully in the discussions, you know, as I mentioned before, talk about the, the procedural success rates, talk about potential risks and complications. And my practice is usually, um, you know, to go with an antiarrhythmic drug in the first instance and, uh, and try and modify as many of their, of their cardiovascular risk factors as possible.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. That's a great summary Uh, again. And we kind of touched a bit about some subgroups, as you said, patients with risk factors, the elderly, frail patients. Are there any other subgroups of patients that we should think about or have some special aspects to their AF management? Um. Valvular heart disease, or is this more specialist input? No, I think
1: I think the one group that I would probably um, focus on is the elderly and patients with with the highest chance of it, chance vascular risk scores because they've they've got the most to gain from anticoagulation, but often to me seem to be the ones that turn out not to be anticoagulated for, you know, for for a variety of reasons that really aren't, you know, aren't firm contraindications. Now, obviously if you give an anticoagulation, an, an anticoagulant to a patient and they have a major you know, catastrophic bleed, then that, then that is a disaster. But, you know, uh, is, it, is it better to let them just, you know, have, a, have an ischemic stroke from AF? Well, no, no, it's not. So I think, I think we need to identify and the patients that we are that we are that we are inappropriately withholding anticoagulants from and these are often patients with the highest chance of vasc scores mm-hmm. the elderly they often have the highest bleeding scores as well but you know that you know that's just life and and informing the patient um, you know and their relatives about uh, about the pros and cons of anticoagulation and, and, and I mentioned falls. So a lot of elderly patients aren't anticoagulated because of the potential risk that they might fall or they do fall. And, and the ESC guidelines suggest that a patient needs to fall about 300 times a year for the risk of falls to outweigh the benefits of anticoagulation. So I think that's an important point. Um, a, a, an important point that we need to, the patients at highest risk, we really need to have discussions about anticoagulation. A, a, a couple more more specific points. I mentioned amiodarone in the elderly is perfectly reasonable, and finally, in, in elderly patients with difficult to control or highly symptomatic AF, um, a pacemaker along with an AV nodal node ablation can be can be a really effective treatment, especially if a patient has side effects to medications that we don't want to take. Uh, they obviously need to stay on anticoagulation if, you know, if, if that's indicated, um, but that can be a really, really effective treatment for some highly symptomatic patients.
0: Great, thank you very much for your time. I think uh, we managed to cover some very important um, aspects in the management of atrial fibrillation patients, um, and if you, I guess we've already summarised the the, the the main key points. Um, is there any other messages you want to give to all those doctors looking after you, patients on the wards uh, that you think we didn't cover?
1: Well, I think I think we've covered most. I think we've covered most of the important points. Um, I, I like the ESC's ABC: anticoagulate, anticoagulate, or consider patients for anticoagulation. That's so important and done early. Don't delay. Don't delay over that. Chad's VASC score is pretty straightforward. Symptom control by whatever means, and I, I would involve your local cardiologist or electrophysiologist if needed. Um, finally, and I've uh, you know I've emphasised this through, through our discussion this afternoon, um, it is really important to modify risk factors, especially weight, blood, blood pressure, alcohol intake, etc. So, um, so, so I guess these are my ABCs, really my take-home message. Um, And uh, thank you once again for inviting me to to chat to you this afternoon.
0: Thank you, Dr. Sterratt, for your time and for this overview of the new guidelines on the assessment and management of patients with atrial fibrillation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Clinical Conversations and found it useful. We have an exciting week coming up at the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh. The online 60th St. Andrew's Day Symposium will be happening from the 24th to the 27th of November. This year we have four days of interesting talks and discussions on a range of topics giving an update on acute medicine. The online booking system is still open. We hope you can join us and enjoy the programme.